how can we revive repairability and reuse for our electronics and electricals? Welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Wheatman, and I started this podcast to help people discover why circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. Some people think going circular means swapping a few materials or making things a bit more recyclable. But that's nowhere near enough to create a healthy, resilient and zero carbon world where we can all thrive. Many organisations are missing the game-changing potential of going circular. The disruptors in this space are using circular strategies to reimagine how to create value for all their stakeholders. They're doing better with less. We'll hear from those inspiring people who are challenging business as usual and rethinking how we design, make and use everything. You'll find the show notes and links at circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to podcast updates, my Circular Insights newsletter and check out my award-winning A Circular Economy Handbook. Hey there, welcome back. It's episode 112. I'm delighted to be talking with Fiona Deer, a co-director at the Restart Project, which aims to keep our electronics in use for longer through repair and reuse. The Restart Project champions community repair, supporting regular restart parties where people teach each other how to repair their broken and slow devices. The Restart Project uses the data and stories they collect to help demand better, more sustainable electronics for all. Having recognised that there's only so much we can do to prevent waste downstream, the Restart Project is making waves upstream, campaigning for stronger regulations for better design, our right to repair and more support for the repair economy. Before Restart, Fiona spent over 15 years working to engage public audiences in environmental issues. At the Restart Project, she oversees UK programmes and campaigning. Fiona tells us about some of the many initiatives the Restart Project has pioneered, including the Right to Repair movement, now with 100 organisations in the coalition, Restart Parties and more recently Fixing Factories and FixFest. I'm a big supporter of open sourcing, and this is central to what the Restart Project does, helping people collaborate and learn from others, providing online toolkits and guidelines to help people around the world fledge their own repair projects. This is about scaling out rather than scaling up, something that Ken Webster and Craig Johnson advocate in their latest book on regenerative and circular economies, A, B, C and D. Systems thinking is at the heart of the Restart Project's approach, going upstream to understand the root causes of the problems. And Fiona tells us about some of their data collection on common faults. It was also fascinating to hear about how people's mindsets are changing and how a simple repair can spark all sorts of positive effects. So my thanks to Fiona Deer for taking the time to be with us and let's meet Fiona now. Fiona, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thanks for having me. 
So I'm really interested to unpack some of the wide range of initiatives that the Restart Project has got going. Um, but can we start with how the Restart Project got going in the first place? Well, yeah, it started about 10 years ago. Um, at, it, 10 years ago last year, we had our, our birthday. Um, uh, and um, it started, there were two founders, Ugo and Janet, um, who got basically got frustrated with how throwaway electronics are and they wanted to do something about it. So they started with quite hands-on opportunities and they started what we call restart parties. So they're, they're community events where you can bring a small electrical item that's broken and then a volunteer fixer will, will try and fix it, but you get to be part of the process. The idea is that you get to see under the bonnet of your electronics and, and hopefully learn some skills while, while you're at it. Um, uh, and then it didn't take it wasn't very didn't take very long for them to realize that kind of there's only so much you can do downstream or kind of at the at the point where people are trying to repair it that there are a lot of problems that start upstream and how how um products are made and so um so they began campaigning also for for things like right to repair right so and and what kind of reactions were you getting from the people at the restart parties were they kind of empowered by the the knowledge that they got or did did they start to question why things weren't easily repairable yeah that that comes up a lot it's almost like as soon as you start opening something up and you can see that there's about 15 types of screws or that the screws are really um inaccessible or that you can't even get in because it's glued together people start questioning uh, um how things are made so they they come they come together it's not they're not separate um they're not separate kind of uh projects it's just it's just a logical um it's a logical way of thinking once you started trying to get into electronics mm. okay so um the right to repair campaign was the next thing in the journey then um and how did they get going with that and who who've they brought into the kind of collaboration around that so uh, I, the, the most exciting development in the campaigning has been in europe so um uh a few years ago we collaborated with a few european groups to do a protest around around kind of um how unrepairable um printers in particular were and out of that evolved this coalition which is now called the right to repair campaign and it's got over 100 members now and it's really um it's it's a really um weighty campaign very busy at the moment because it's feeding into a lot of european legislation that's evolving um really making sure that it has an impact and it's changing the narrative in europe we're still campaigning in the UK, but that less has less momentum, partly because there's less of a structure developed and partly just because there's less to play with. You know, we don't have this kind of um, constant flow of legislation that you have in the in the EU in here. There's, in, in the UK, there's just, yeah, it, we're sort of starting from scratch. So uh, we, we are trying to uh, see how we can evolve that, but uh, it's a bit more of a challenge, let's say. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it, to think that, the EU has has its long-term plan and is constantly raising the bar and moving things forward towards whether that's better social outcomes in terms of affordability and, and being able to repair the stuff that you own or from the environmental point of view. And it's a shame that the UK just seems to be so off the scale, really, with a lot of those those aspects of being a good government and you know looking after the interests of future generations you know for for, for people's 
outcomes as well as the planet. So what came next after the Right to Repair campaign got going? Well, what I'd say is kind of about the same time, um, uh, Restart was kind of expanding what it did um, at a programme level. So so kind of rather than running re- Restart parties themselves, it, it turned into a network where we, we support groups to run their own. Um, we started working with net, um, other people who kind of support networks of repair cafes across the UK and we formed, we helped to form the Community Repair Network. And, and with that, we've just we've just mapped it out. And there are actually almost 500 repair cafes in the UK, which surprised us. Before that, we thought it was more like 250. So so actually just just mapping it is, is really helpful thing to do. Um, and people can find their repair cafes a bit more easily now. Um, again, in the process of all of this, we started a, an online platform called restarters.net. And so that's um, a little bit so that repair groups can kind of, you know, they can host, they can post events and it's a way for them to publicize what they're doing. It's also for fixers to chat to each other and kind of um, compare notes. Um, in London, in particular, we have a bit of a kind of, um, uh, there's a kind of bank of repairers that, that go along to various different repair, you know, repair re- restart parties. But um, also the other really exciting thing that we do, do on that is that we um, collect repair data. So um, uh, repair groups can upload what repairs they've done, whether they were successful or not. And, and then they can kind of translate that into impact in terms of waste avoided and also carbon emission of commission carbon emissions avoided and that's useful for the groups but it's also me it's useful for us so then that's that was the next evolution that we started working with networks around the world including repair big one huge ones like repair cafe international and others and so we we collate this data we've come up with a standard so it's all in the same format and we're up to a hundred thousand repair records now so there's a lot that we can kind of we can say from that data and, and we can use that feeds into the campaigning too because um when there was legislation in europe around vacuum cleaners we were able to feed in what were the most common types of repairs and that's and that's helpful for pushing back against narratives that come from manufacturers about saying oh well it's only this and that that we need to worry about and we can say actually no the range of repairs that are coming to us are much are much wider so um so again kind of the the programmatic stuff and the campaigning stuff um kind of comes together and then the other place the other way where that that happens is um we have fix fest so that's a, an annual uh sort of conference sort of gathering of fixes and it happens alternately in the UK and global so the next one is in the UK and Cardiff and 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 that's that's often where a lot of these things spark so the open repair alliance came out of a fix fest and um the community repair network came out of a, a fix fest so it's a bit of a kind of incubator a, a breeding ground for ideas in the fixing community so like the um uh, the comic con of repairs then I, oh, I like that yeah I'm going to use that <laughs> so that sounds amazing. So just going back to the repair data, are you are, there, are any of the manufacturers asking you to share that with them? Um we we haven't we've had a few conversations with manufacturers, but the data um is spread out across a lot of models and a lot of um brands. So so it's really helpful when you put it together and you can see trends, but but at an individual model level, um it we probably don't have enough to to feedback to manufacturers. But we do chat to them, for example, um about 
generally kind of what 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 sorts of what sorts of design um that you can you can um implement to kind of make it more easily repairable what are the things you need to think about when you're designing a product Mm, that sounds interesting and i'm wondering if there's any potential to join up with some of the other organizations that might collect similar things so i fix it have all their um data and then a recent podcast guest um the company's called tulu so they have like vending machines in blocks of flats and and they're also about to partner with IKEA um, in Sweden to have a, a vending machine in a shopping mall for people to rent um, things like it can be everything from DIY equipment to cleaning equipment. So instead of everybody in a block of flats having to have their own, um, I don't know, vac- even vacuum cleaner or steam cleaner, then you just go and um, get it from the machine. And they're starting to share data with brands and brands are really interested to find out how people in, you know, interact with the products. Because if something's in a, particularly in a sharing system or if something's going to be resold, it needs to be intuitive to use, doesn't it? None of us want to spend ages looking through, you know, the tiny print in, in an instruction book to work out how to use this. So, there's all sorts of aspects, not not just of the repairability, but the ease of use and the, you know, how how easy is it to refill something that needs refilling, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think the the general data as well, you you know, you're absolutely right. It can be really useful for all brands. I'm thinking of something I heard once about um, the design failure point on kettles was usually the little microchip that sensed when the kettle was boiling and turned it off. And that there was pretty much only one manufacturer of those switches. So they could revolutionize the lifespan of virtually every every kettle. And all the other brands are kind of hamstrung by that weak point. So you might be super pleased with your dual kettle or whatever it is that's long lasting, but you're going to be cheesed off when it fails after after a few years because of that same switch. So these are, you know, these are ways that the brands that want to provide more durable products could tap in and realize it's not just their product that's affected by this. It's every other one. So I think that that data is really powerful and um, I'm reluctant to publicize Google, but I want to acknowledge it. It was their phrase. So Google says waste is just a data problem. So I think this, this collection and sharing of data, I'm sure it's really, really important to move things forward. Yeah, and, and one of the core principles of the data is that it's open. So it's called the Open Repair Alliance. So all of the data we, we collect, um, anyone can download and play with and analyse in their own way. Um, so so we, we're we sure that the, the impact is much more than just what we do with it, but it's we collect it and we put it out there in the world for people to use. Mm, that's good. And that reminds me of the Plastic Health Coalition. What they've been doing is trying to get scientists really interested in investigating the impact of plastics on health. So maybe there's a case for engaging with the Horizon Project or something like that and trying to get them, you know, all the researchers interested in using the data from the Open Repair Alliance to help move us forward on the on the design of products and the repair repairability and maybe some of the materials and you know how do we get away from making things cheaper by bonding and gluing which prevents them being repaired 
all that kind of stuff. So yeah. what, what, what are the impacts further down the line that aren't considered at the design stage? Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Brilliant. So um, and then then there's fixing factories that I've I've seen lots of in the press. I think that was some of the 10 year celebrations were talking about the fixing factories as well. Yes, yes. Um, and that's um, that's one of our really interesting new projects. We started that last year and it feels like it's kind of like the next step in community repair. <clears throat> so for 10 years, um, repair cafes have, have worked as pop ups and, you know, they're once a month, um, if you're lucky, once a week. Um, and, and we wanted to look at kind of what what do, what do permanent fixing spaces look like? Um, and we, t- we tested out two models. One was based in a waste facility. So that was kind of collecting the laptops that people brought, um, refurbishing it and then donating it to people who lacked dig- digital access. Um, the other one was much more public facing. So that was a kind of high street um, shop. Uh, there's a essentially a repair cafe um, as part of the market. So they spill out onto the street. They're, 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 they're really visible, kind of getting repair in people's faces, basically. And um, and um, yeah, it's just the idea has really captured people's imaginations. It's amazing just the, the, the kind of the idea of just yeah, repair on a high street. That's what we all want. We all just want to go to our local high street, get stuff repaired. And we want it to be easier and more accessible. So I think that's why people love it. So we're we um our plans are to kind of scale that up, but in maybe in a bit more of a an uh, as an incubator. So what we want to do is kind of help new ones start up, use what we've learnt, help them them to get going, um, figure out where to find funding because um we are realistic in that um if we focus too much on making money from the repair service, it it's just I mean the basic economics of repair doesn't really add up anymore that's why we're in the situation we are and like it's labor intensive labor costs a lot more money than materials so so um so we 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 played around with lots of different business models um and we and we got to the point where we we think the, the most that we can add to the existing system but also we what that we want to test as a kind of as a business model is is about the skills and learning so rather than thinking of it as kind of we want to fix this many products we, we want to think we want this many people to be able to fix and then products will get fixed in the process of that. But that's almost it's almost a byproduct. And then you have a much longer lasting impact because all of these people will then go on to fix other things in their lives. It might be it might not even be electronics. It might be other things, but it changes mindsets. And and we've got some really compelling data about um, when people once people have been shown the basics that, that like almost I think it was like 95% of them said that they were more likely to carry on fixing so there's a real impact on just kind of like giving people the skills and that's what we what we're losing as 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 we as we get away from the kind of repair mindset yeah I guess it's the same kind of thing as cooking isn't it that schools have moved away from teaching people how to cook and now they teach them how to you know create the marketing for a for a ready meal I'm talking about UK schools but those are those are kind of basic life skills that you know we we used to have and you would just learn from um well I wouldn't learn from my dad because <laughs> if I have to go down and do any DIY at my parents I have to think carefully about what I need to take with me um because you know th- there'll be nothing there um and yet an, another pal of mine um his uh, his father said to him on his seventeenth birthday, "Hey son, you know I've uh, I've got you something really special for your for your birthday. Open the garage door, and there's a you know fairly beaten up old car, um, and uh, 
you know, my, my friend was absolutely over the moon. This was totally unexpected. They didn't have the money for this kind of thing. And um, so then he lifted up the bonnet and said, all you've got to do now is find an engine for it. And here's your Haynes manual. I love it. I love it. That should be a coming of age thing that all teenagers have to do. They have to kind of build their own car. Um, but that, but that's exactly right. I mean, I didn't know that about them not teaching cooking in schools anymore. That's really sad. But um, I mean, we were always talking about that people should be should be being taught repair in schools. And and it's as much about the skills as the mindset. It's like people just don't think of keeping things in use. They or like I, I would I'd say for like ninety plus percent of people, something breaks, especially in an electronic. The first thing you think is like, where can I get a new one? If you're lucky, then they'll kind of think, hang on a minute. No, maybe I can get it fixed. But but it's just not part of the thought process for most people. And it's because like electronics are such a kind of enigma. You know, we're mm. all we're all a bit scared of it because we just don't know what we're gonna find inside. And it and um and it, it doesn't need to be, especially for things like phones, you know, there's um relatively low risk getting into your phone it's pain because it, they're not designed right but but I would love everyone to have a go at kind of opening up a phone and when their screen breaks they can try and fix it or, ch- or their battery in particular um and then the other the, the the parallel bit of work is to make get them to be made more easily so it's easier to repair but um but we just need people to kind of we need to take the fear away from electronics I think yeah, I think you're right. And it does feel like a, a sort of black box full of and you know, full of bits and pieces that you've no idea what does what. Mm-hmm. And you probably don't have the tools for it. Yeah, yeah. But it I had the, I had the same experience when I started at, at restart. I I dropped my phone in water in about the first week. <laughs> I was here I was like oh, okay well I, I definitely have to try and repair that and but the the thing with me is I was lucky enough to like that we one of our restarters was at an event and he showed me how to take apart my phone we didn't change the battery then because I didn't have a replacement but because I'd seen it I tried it and he showed me how to put it back together um like I had the confidence to do it and I just don't think I would have and then I was able to access the tools because we have tools in our office you know but it's just that most people just don't have the luxury of of the the tools or the the helping hand yeah and I guess just to pick up on what you said about the economics of repair I guess that's more complicated than just it's expensive to to buy the parts because people aren't repairing in large numbers so you know the, the parts aren't aren't stocked in ways that are easy to access but it goes beyond that doesn't it is we've we've talked a bit about design and because there's no discipline probably in the company for reducing the different number of components and parts that are used across a, a range of models and across a succession of models as they get upgraded, designers are allowed to just swap in whatever new bits and pieces they want. So the economics for the company of stocking all the spare parts becomes expensive and complicated. And when you move on to the new model, you're likely to end up with obsolete parts that may or may not be required by somebody to repair something, yeah. but the likelihood the most, is not. Yeah, and the most visible kind of um, example of that that we can all identify with is, is chargers. Like we've all got this spaghetti mm. of chargers somewhere that we don't, you never know if you're going to need them again, although there are probably some that you definitely don't. But, but you know, it, it, but that that is about to change to some degree because Europe has brought in a law saying that kind of um, phones and laptops and things have to have common chargers. 
but um, it's taken a lot of campaigning to get to that. But, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And as you said, that's that's happening inside our gadgets with loads of different types of parts. Mm. And I think this is this is the thing, isn't it? It's the mindset of the manufacturer to think, you know, what are we really spending on the inventory of this? If the law comes in that says we have to keep a stock of spare parts for 10 years or whatever it is, what does that mean for our inventory? And if we continue to allow our designers to choose any part they want and any material they want over the course of the new models and the upgrades, where will we end up in terms of what we've got to stock and what's the cost of that? And starting to then think, well, what if we did it differently? What if we used, if we had some standard components? What if we designed like the Fairphone using modules and left enough space in there to slot something in that's different? You know, for washing machines, do we really need electronics? My parents have a washing machine. It's not it's not that old and it's just got dials, you know, to select the program, the spin speed, the temperature. And that's just so easy. Do you know, do we really need all these all these programs? Mostly we only use two or three different programs. So I think there's been a temptation for manufacturers to overcomplicate things because that seems to make it more interesting for the for the customer but now i think people are starting to think more about value for money how long will this last do mm. i really want something that could be connected to the internet uh, you know what a, what's the data privacy risk around that so yeah, there are I mean, other other things to to bear in mind yeah and there's a lot of risks around that i mean the the emergence of smart products is is going to be an emerging problem i don't think we've really seen it yet but as you said there's issues around data where the hardware might last for 10 or 15 years, but will the electronics? And then if the electronics break, that's probably going to be um, replacing it is going to be close to, or like at least half of the cost of a new one. And we're just going to get a lot more waste because of this addition of extra complexity, as you say. Um, So uh, yeah, we need to kind of get a handle on this. And I think the more that we're building repair into the design of products, as all of this emerges, then the less of a problem they'll be further down the line. Yeah, definitely. And I think some some manufacturers are really starting to think in that way. We just need it all to happen more quickly and, and in a more widespread way. So are there any other ways, Fiona, that you see things evolving over the next few years? Um, well, um, at... At the in terms of restart activities, um, we're we're quite keen to. One of the things that that we found is that um, the the problem, the challenge of kind of how do you get people to repair more, how do you make it more accessible, is so huge and all in, encompassing that you can very easily get pulled in so many different directions, right? So we're trying to be quite disciplined that we're we're trying to stay in the same direction but, and evolve what we're doing within that those parameters. So um, as I said, we want to kind of um, expand fixing factories but as part of that we've realized that you know well and, and what we know already from the from repair cafes is that the biggest bottleneck is the number of fixes you know that you, you don't have a shortage of demand it's just how how many people can fix so we're developing a fixing training model and um and that will be at various different levels we'll have like the entry level you can could just come and do a workshop and take apart your toaster or you can have a more in-depth um like training program and then in in the course of this we've realized that there's just no repair 
qualification in the UK. There just isn't one. There's no certification. So, so for young people who want to get into this, they're not seeing the point. They're going to put lots of time into it and they're not going to get anything that really looks good on their CV. But that in itself has sparked some conversations with big bodies that are the sorts of people that can bring about accreditations and they're interested in like in talking about how we can bring that in so all of these things kind of evolve from each other and that's quite exciting and 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 that in itself will provide more of an incentive so we'll hopefully get more fixes in general like outside our programs so that's that's exciting and we're we're um we're getting increasingly approached by kind of local authorities who want to, to who want to bring repair to their area um and often the initial request is can we run a restart party in their their borough and then and we we tend to say well we could or we could help you set up a repair we could help you work with community groups to set up your own repair group that then carries on and obviously they they see the point in that so we're doing a lot of kind of helping there is interest within councils and and it just needs a bit of a steer from us to kind of provide something that's a bit more longer lasting um another way that we're expanding is with the community repair repair network we're starting a project to work in universities so um to and and it's to kind of set up repair initiatives we're being very open-minded about it because the model of a repair cafe might not work in universities so we're, it's almost like we're going to come with the challenge of how can we get people repairing more and like help and kind of basically support students to come up with their own plans we'll test it see how it works and evolve, and evolve from there so lots going on within the pr programmatic side of things um i think that the kind of um european campaigning around repair is is really exciting um and is and just seems to be speeding up we've been slightly surprised by some 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 bits of policy that we thought were just going to end up being shelved and they've just suddenly come and that's why my colleagues are very very busy at the moment um but then what's exciting is that we, that's also there's more happening in the us so we're starting to get you know we've got the first right to repair law in new york and then it, it's following in other in other states so it feels like momentum is gathering there momentum is gathering in europe we're hoping that we can use that as an argument to get kind of the uk and other countries obviously can persuade their own countries to say look you're going to get left behind if mm. you don't if you don't, don't keep up with it so um so it from a positive point of view i think that campaigning and just awareness of repair and the need to to keep things in use for longer is growing um and uh, so we just can start to tip the balance it's, i mean it's very very um heavily on unbalanced at the moment and we just start we can just very slow we slowly start to tip it so that um, repair becomes more front of mind and becomes the norm rather than the afterthought yeah definitely and there are two things i wanted to pick up on there the first one about tipping the balance reminds me of and i can't remember the name of the the book or the people but um two academics over in the u.s a couple of years ago wrote a book about you know how to make your your idea or your um solution to something you know really really take off and they said that often we pay an awful lot of attention to putting the fuel into the idea but what we don't do is look at the friction slowing it down from taking off so when you were talking about the qualifications that brought that to mind that you know you can get people enthusiastic about wanting to repair but as you said, if there's no qualification, then people are thinking, you know, I'm really interested in this, but how do I make it lead to a career? So, you know, finding those kind of friction points or missing elements can really help take something forward. And the other thing I liked, which um, we talked a little bit about, 
when you were talking about the restart parties and the fact that you'd put solutions together to help people do their own local parties, it's this idea of scaling something out by making it replicable instead of scaling up and getting really big as one organisation. And what you were saying about helping councils plays into that as well. So I think this idea of creating toolkits and guides for people to do do things and, and do it their own way, you know, make it relevant to that that country, that region, that community. But here's here's what you need to know to kind of get started. So I think those are those are really useful ways to help the the movement and the mindset really change more quickly. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that's always been a really helpful part. And it, ha- it started much before I, I arrived, but there's always been a, a, mi- a mindset about who can we work with? what, How can we leverage more impact? Like, let's not try and do everything. Let's try and help other people to do everything. And and um, and so it just, it, it has so much more impact and, and longevity there. So uh, yeah, that's really important. Great stuff. And so Fiona, since you joined Restart, what have you struggled with and what surprised you? Well, I mean, I have to say, I think that the complexity of the issue um, surprised me. And I, I came from campaigning on climate change for a very long time. So I didn't, you know, climate is a very complex issue. And I, I didn't expect to feel so kind of blown away by by um, by the complexity. But I suppose the thing with electronics, it's not just, I mean, there's the, the whole waste system, which in itself is massively complex. But then you have to start thinking about, you know, kind of, the you know the design side of things and like warranties and guarantees and things that you wouldn't might not have thought of before and um and then even kind of like digital access comes into it so there's so many kind of different types of of like almost disciplined sectors that come into repair of electronics um so 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 it's quite complex but but then I think the other the other thing that um it's interesting people talk about climate anxiety Mm. um which I didn't particularly suffer from when I worked um, from for, in the climate sector, but I feel like I'm I, I'm sort of general I'm developing waste anxiety, and it's that thing of you know it's so much more in your face. It, it you see it every day. You see it on the street when you walk down, and people have put stuff out in the rain, um, and it's going to get it's going to get damaged. Um, but then I think more importantly is that kind of the climate sector has been developing for like 20, 30 years. There's huge organisations working on it. There's really developed coalitions there's processes to influence there's all of that and and it just feels like that's lacking with with the circular economy it's there it's there for recycling there's a multi-million dollar um, pound industry around recycling but it's just it's tinkering around the edges with reuse and repair it really it just feels like the 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 tools that we have um pardon the pun (laughs) at our disposal to kind of to shift the balance between kind of bring up repair and reuse over over throwing away or even recycling are just so limited compared to the scale of the problem and and i've spent a lot of the last year and a half just really kind of um kind of battling with that and thinking like what how what can we do here we're a small organization um but i suppose what i'd say is you know i was quite hopeful before in the kind of momentum and and we we have found like this year in particular that we've just had so many conversations with with people, quite big companies and organisations that that are really interested, and I think they feel like us. They're bigger, they're much bigger than us, but they feel like us in that kind of yes, we need to fix this, but how? Where do you start? So we we've got a quite exciting conversation coming up with a, with a load of them, and 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 really encouraged by the interest. So I hope that we can that through again convening people and through getting people to talk to each other, we can start to um, tackle this. 
yeah, yeah that would be a surprise. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, though. People are starting to think differently and to question old habits. You know, why are we replacing our laptops every every few years? Because actually, the software is not developing so fast that the processors can't keep up. I was reading something in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago that was doing a piece reviewing big companies who have their own massive server networks, so the kind of social media and so on. And it was going through the list and looking at how they'd told their shareholders that they were extending the lifespan of the servers that they used and actually saying, you know, we're now going to extend from five years to six years or from six years to seven years and going public with that. And so, you know, they're they're looking at the cost of just discarding servers that could actually be repaired or um, a fit for, you know, to continue for longer. So I think more companies are starting to look at the things that they've got and questioning, you know, why are we replacing this? You know, why don't we have a remanufactured laptop or why don't we find a laptop that's easier to repair so that when something goes wrong, we can just, just sort it? And I think that's driven not just from how do we cut costs in the business, but also that mindsets of employees and customers are changing. People don't want to see waste from, you know, here's a load of new new kit we've just got, here's an office refit. Well, what was wrong with the office that we had? You know, there's, we, it's, just, it's just kind of um, being profligate, not just with money that could have been spent on better things like training and so on, but also you know, we don't want to see things being wasted and we don't want to feel like we're just extracting more and more from the earth. So I think those mindsets are starting to pervade the thinking in, in companies large and small. And then I noticed, I think it was over Christmas, um, results from Curry's, the UK big electrical retailer, and they'd made a really big thing about how their new repair service was taking off, was incredibly popular with customers and they really saw the revenue and the profits from that as being a key thing for the future. So they were really kind of doubling down on it and again, telling their shareholders about it. So I think there's some, you know, kind of important signals coming if if people look around enough to tell us that, you know, it's not it's not just like a guerrilla movement anymore. There are all sorts of reasons why people want things to be repairable and to last longer. And yeah, and the more... The more you have those those companies kind of trying something new and like telling everyone about it, maybe being honest about what didn't work and, you know, but just but the, that's what starts shifting how other business businesses think, because that's essentially where we need to get to. Right. If we if we want kind of basically we want people to buy less electronics the way, the way we want that is for electronics to stay in use but that's that's all about business models changing as well as you know community community activity like we've spoken about but it's about kind of offering rentals you know over over having to buy everything new and it's about kind of repair being as prominent as buying a new thing or even like refurbished and reused things you know that if that starts to be the first or like along among the first things that a customer sees then they will go for those other options it's just that at the moment all you see is buy new buy new buy new and um and it, that's just it's not sustainable but yeah as you say like we just need those kind of those pioneers to try the new things make a big deal out of it get a lot of uh, of you know positive feedback from it and then others will start to follow yeah and i think i do feel this you know the seeds are, are being sown and those ideas are being being fueled and and you know getting positive feedback from customers and and shareholders 
So Fiona, when you're talking to somebody about the circular economy, who might want to start going more circular in their organisation or improve what they're doing, what's the number one lesson learned from your experience at the Restart Project? Um, I think I'd probably build on what I was just saying, that kind of be bold and try new things. It's, it's, it's a lesson with a few things attached to it. So I'm probably not meeting your brief, but um, uh, but yeah, so kind of like try new things, be bold, um, but maybe be a bit realistic, because if you have the condition that, well, this has to kind of pay for itself within, you know, immediately, it, that just might, it just is almost destined to fail. So you need to give it, give, give yourself time to build it up, sort of think about using the CSR budget, you know, like this is an investment, you have to put money into it to like make this work. And then you can shout about it, and you'll get loads of praise for it. But you do need to kind of, it's, you're not going to get that just from an easy thing, you have to put the work in to get the reward. Yeah. And you're not going to get that these days from just putting out good intentions <laughs> you have to have the the proof that you've actually done something and that you're taking real action that you know yeah. there's there's quite a lot of um research on particularly younger younger people who you know want want brands to be walking the talk not just putting out you know important important messages and if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing to help create a better world what would that be well i think um in the context of what we've been talking about, I think making material, the cost of materials reflect the impact and the actual value that they have, because that's what this is all about. If, if, if materials cost significantly more than labor, then we would value our stuff, we'd keep it, we'd put the time into repairing it and, and refurbishing it. Um, and, and it's like, that's almost all you need. It's not, it's not like it's a simple solution, but if that changed, it would massively shift the balance. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. The whole, you know, the whole cost it just isn't known, uh, never mind included for for just about everything, um, yeah. you know, from from food to fibres to metals and, and plastics, everything we think about. And Fiona, is there somebody that you'd recommend as a future guest for the podcast or is there a favourite circular example that you'd like to share? I um I think that uh, Library of Things, uh, which is based in London, we we work we work with them. We actually sit next to them in the office, but they've got a really interesting example of what you were saying before. It's about sharing, but they've also really put some very intelligent thought into kind of how to make it rep replicable, how to make a business model of it, what people need, and and they've got they'll have some brilliant examples to to talk about. Fantastic! I'd love to interview the Library of Things in in London. And um, I think I've I think I've reached out before and didn't get anywhere. So it's it's worth trying again. Thank you. Yeah. And Fiona, how can people find out more and get in touch with you and the Restart Project? So, um, well, our, our website is the first place. It's therestartproject.org. And um, we also run our own podcast with lots of conversations around repair. So you'll be able to find that on the website. And of course, we're on social media, um, tw Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, we're not on TikTok yet because we're not that cool, but um, uh, but the other social media channels were there. Fantastic. So I'll put all of those links in the show notes. And thank you very much. It's been fascinating to hear about the different strands of, of all the work that the um, Restart Project is helping, you know, the ways it's helping people move forward in rethinking our relationship with stuff and the need to repair and sowing all these seeds to help spark ideas in businesses and in people 
that you know repairs something that we used to do without thinking and there's no reason why we can't get back to that situation again so thanks very much and good luck for whatever the next phase of projects is well thank you it's been a really interesting discussion I'm so impressed by the way the Restart Project initiates something and then keep iterating and evolving to increase impact and momentum. The systems thinking approach feels important, especially in the way the Restart Project has used learnings from the new fixing factories to investigate ways to make repairing normal and look at what's stopping that, the friction. I mentioned a book about how to sell and implement change, with the authors describing how we spend most of our efforts in adding fuel to push our new idea forward. But we tend not to look at the friction, what's getting in the way. The book is called The Human Element by Lauren Nodgren and David Chantal. The authors summarise four types of friction around new ideas. Inertia, emotion, effort and reactance and they give examples and strategies on how to overcome those frictions. I've included a link to the book website, which has some cool free tools to help you check out the friction elements in your idea. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. And big thanks to our passionate campaigning guest this week, Fiona Deer of The Restart Project. You can find out more about Fiona Deer and The Restart Project at therestartproject.org. Follow them on social media and check out all the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. The Circular Economy Podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, the company I started to help you succeed with Circular. You can find information on my talks, workshops and advice plus circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info. And you can connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can do better with less. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. If you're just starting out with the circular economy, why not check out our Getting Started playlist on the podcast homepage? You could also buy my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out the interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening to the end. And if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe and I'll see you next time. <music>